Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from Risk Commercial Media called Breaking Even with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. Each week, Ned is joined by some of the biggest names in golf and sports handicapper, Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I drop by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. New episodes drop every Thursday, so follow it in your favorite podcast store and don't forget to leave us a review. So I know you all were wondering, where was G. Swizzle last week for the On The Tape podcast? I was in the state of Utah, which people don't realize how far west the state of Utah is. We went to a place called the Stein Erickson Lodge in Deer Valley. Absolutely beautiful. I encourage you all to visit the state of Utah. By the way, they filmed the first two seasons of Yellowstone there, for those who care. God, you're obsessed. Obsessed. You obsessed the best show, show ever. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Guy, Guy, was that resort in Provo, Spain? Provo, Spain? No. No. I actually, but no. you know, since you're oh, being Provo, a funny Utah. guy here, ha ha, I actually fished in the lower Provo River, caught brown trout, Danny Moses. Danny, I know you're a bit of a fisherman. You know, <laughs> there's that old saying- you teach a man to fish and he can feed himself for the whole world. Something like that anyway. Guy, Please, Danny. Why is Roy Scheider not in the Fishing Hall of Fame? I'm just curious. He's because- absolutely. You know, Frank Mundus is in the Fishing Hall of Fame. Robert Shaw. Rocky Balboa is in the Boxing Hall of Fame. So I refuse to believe that Roy Scheider should not. Anyway, go ahead. You talked about fishing. That's a- that's an excellent point by you. See, now, Dan Nathan, see, folks, unfortunately, you can't see Dan's face. He's making all kinds of eye rolls because he wants us to get into it. There's a lot to talk about it. So without further ado... You're listening to the On The Tape podcast. As I mentioned, I'm Guy Adami, back. Joined as always by my dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Huge show today, folks. We're looking at stocks at record highs. The work from home stocks are plunging. Plus, the meme stops are soaring. Later, Dan Nathan is going off the tape. Watch what I do here with Meltem Demers, Packy McCormick, I call him PMAC, and Jared Dicker, I call him J Dick, but that's just me. To explain what the F is going on with this metaverse, <laughs> let's get started. All-time highs. Danny, what's going I wasn't here last week, so Danny, fill me in, please. I don't know what's going on either. I'm in the metaverse, but earnings are still decent. Rates are still calm. Oil's not going up more. People think they got what they want with the Fed yesterday, but I'm going to talk about that in a second. And I guess, you know, so welcome if you got them is what the motto's been. You didn't miss anything, guy. I thought... Last week when you were gone, that would be the signal, obviously, for the market to sell off. Wrong again. Wrong again is right. And there's the Ashford and Simpson for you songwriting fans out there. They actually wrote the song that Diana Ross made famous called Ain't No Mountain High Enough. I can sing it, Dan, if you'd like. But I think I bring that up because there ain't no mountain high enough for some of these names. You get NVIDIA, for example, just got an upgrade earlier this week off to the races. I mean, you can make any argument you want on valuation, how expensive these stocks are. 
Nobody seems to care, Dan. You know, we've talked about Tom Lee of Funstrat, his call, I think from like a month or two ago about the everything rally. He just saw, sees everything going up, every risk asset you could think of that fits into the risk on thing. And, he, and he's been right and it's been working. And so I think one of the things, the story of this week though, Guy, and I know you did get back here for a couple of days of this action is like you said, yeah, there ain't no heights high enough. If you have a good story, I mean, NVIDIA is a great example. It's up 15% today. They didn't even do anything. They didn't even say anything. They're just kind of adjacent to what's going on in the market here. And that company now has a $740 billion market cap. It's up 50% in less than two weeks. That's not normal, people. All right. And then on the flip side of that, when we think about some of these stocks that get thrown out, you know, you just mentioned work from home guy. It's also work out from home. If it's Peloton or it's school from home or it's trade stocks from home on Hood, there are no shortage of really good secular thematic names that are down 50% from their highs. So you have stuff blowing out one way. And then you have stuff blowing out the other way. And I don't think that's particularly bullish, especially with the markets at all-time highs. No, I don't think so either. And you know, one of the things I've mentioned, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, I think Danny agrees with me. I think, Dan, you're a little on the fence on this one, is the fact that bond volatility continues to be a story. I mean, we talked about 10-year yields late last week, earlier this week, trading north of 1.6, down to 1.52, back to 1.56. I mean, it's extraordinarily the amount of movement we see in a security or an instrument, whatever you want to call it, that should be the most liquid asset out there. And I only bring that up in the context that the volatility for the equity markets has a 15 handle on it, Danny. It, to me, again, it just doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, you get these bouts of volatility and then they go away. We saw, you know, we always wonder when you see these moving rates, whether it's in the US or globally, who's getting hurt. And we saw this article come out about Baliazzi, Bluecrest, and Exodus Point got hit on what they thought was going to be a spread tightening trade. It's trying to be a spread widening trade or vice versa. I don't even remember, but they lost hundreds of millions of dollars on that trade. And so there are people out there that do get hurt when you see volatility move like this. And we go back to the point where, remember, we talked about banks' inability, or they shouldn't be prop trading anymore as dealers anymore in this group. But I, you know, when, we, when the time does come with a sustained volatility, both in rates and equities, I think we'll see a lot more of this. But for now, it really hasn't happened. Dan, you put a tweet out earlier this week about history repeating itself in the form of taper, S&P 500. You hearken back to my birthday, December 18th, 2013. By the way, my 60th birthday for those counting. You can do the math and figure out how old I'm going to be. Danny's using his fingers to count. But Dan, maybe you can sort of educate myself, Danny Moses, and our audience as to what you think is going on here and subsequently what's going to happen with the equity market. Well, I think this is actually the most interesting part about that. So at the time in December, it was obviously pretty well telegraphed in 2013 that the Fed was going to start to taper. At the time, they were buying much fewer bonds per month, $80 billion. Now they're buying 120. They're buying $80 billion now of treasuries and $40 billion of MBS. And the headline at the time, I was looked on CNBC.com, was that markets propelled to new all-time highs, okay, on the taper announcement. And that's really what we had yesterday on the taper announcement. You know, we're up 25% in the S&P 500. Back in 13, the market was up 22, 23% and closed up 27% on the year. Now, what's different this time is the sovereign debt loads. And what I also think is interesting is that yields to the point that you were just making about the volatility in yields, they don't go higher. Wouldn't you guys all have thought a few months ago that we'd be much closer to the prior highs of this year, near 1.77 in the 10-year? Um, you've seen what's happened in the two-year. I know we've been talking about this, but the fact that yields won't go higher 
because maybe that Fed balance sheet is so much larger, that's what's different this time. And it just can't continue that stocks are going to benefit from these low rates, despite the fact that the taper is happening. Something really nasty is going to happen in the not so distant future. I'm just saying if rates stay low, and then even though that they are tapering, and then they're pushing out now rate hike odds, right? They kind of got pulled forward really quickly. I don't know. It just sets up for what guy would call a witch's brew, in my opinion. Dan, we talked about this, I think it was over a month ago. We mentioned about the potential House going back to the Republicans and potential Senate. And I think that's been pricing into the market as well. And I think that was another reason for the rally, for the no other reason than people believe taxes won't move that much higher. So I think that's been part of this rally as well. I don't think the Fed move, it came and went. And I think the Fed fund futures are still predicting two hikes next year, almost three. I think they're 2.4, basically a chance of, I think it's 40% chance of three rate heights next year occurring. But if we're going to talk about this press conference yesterday, if I can just talk about this for a second. So if the market had been down yesterday following the Fed announcement of the press conference, the narrative would have been the following. Powell starts to taper sooner, you know, as soon as expected in November. He's going to end QE in eight months and he's lost control over inflation and he's not recognizing what's really out there. Instead, it was because the market was up. What's the narrative? He's got this under control. He gave a perfect message to the market. I mean, it was a job audition yesterday. That's fine. But I was struck by two things. The first question in his press conference that was asked, Chairman Powell, can you explain why the market is pricing in two rate increases next year? Can you give it a good reason? His answer should have been, I hope I raise two times. And here's why. He's talking about full employment. What is his mandate? Maximum employment, which, by the way, the second part of the question I wanted to answer is he can't give a definition of what maximum employment is. So he's created this whole nother thing here that's going to create some type of confusion. But his answer should have been, I hope I'm raising two times next year. But you know why it wasn't? One, he's auditioning for a job. He doesn't want to rattle the stock market. But the obsession with the stock market is the feedback. There's no other reason for that question, the answer that way. The other thing he said that was confounding was he didn't believe that inflation we are seeing is tied to the tight labor market. I'm like, what are you talking about? We've we've seen wages go up because people are getting paid more to go in. And that's the one thing he's going to have a real problem with. And he brought up, someone brought up wage price spiral and, and he brought it up too. So that's the next big term that's going to come out. Not so much stagflation, but you know, wage price spiraling. So anyway, it was frustrating to watch because I really believe, and I know I don't have to tell Guy this, that Yes, he may have conveyed the message that he wanted, and this, it appears the stock market got what he wanted. But rest assured, if the market had moved the other way, which it easily could have, the narrative would have been that. What I was going to say in response to that is you're 100% right, because he tried to use similar language, Dan, as you know, I've mentioned a thousand times in October of 2018, and we remember what happened then. But just let me say one other thing, Danny, to your point. He clearly did not sit in on the Deere and Company negotiations over the last couple of weeks because their workers basically said, pay us more. I mean, effectively, I'm completely paraphrasing it and lowest common denominator stuff, but workers are now empowered and go back and look at what happened with Deere this week to ask for more money. I've said for months that wage inflation was the final piece to this puzzle. And if you don't think you have it, you're not paying attention. Well, you could pay attention if you want, but no one was really focused on that pre-pandemic guy. And if you think of some of these manufacturing jobs for companies like Deere, they're going to go back. They're going to be automated. So I, I actually think that some of this wage inflation, I know it was a five-year deal. I understand that. And, and I know that there's a lot of corporates are going to be forced to do some things in the throes of this kind of time that we're in right now, right? Where the labor market is as tight as it is, despite six or seven million people still being unemployed from the pre-pandemic level. 
levels. I just say this as far as, you know, Danny just mentioned in like what the stock market is telling us right here. Well, the stock market today on Thursday is actually saying some very different things. Look at bank stocks. They're actually getting slayed across the board like 3%. And so maybe that has something to do with yield, but it also might have something to do with just sort of expectations about growth going forward. And I'm looking at Amazon, which had really not great results here, right? And I think we were all fairly constructive about going forward. They're actually taking a huge hit because of a lot of the bottlenecks with the supply chain and the increased costs as it relates to wages. But the stock is raging today, up 3%. So to me, it almost feels like we're going back to some of these names that are less GDP sensitive. And I'll just say this, you know, Guy, we talked about this um, after that GDP print for Q3 last week. We started Q3 with GDP expectations, you know, in the high single digit and we ended at 2%. Well, here we are again in Q4 thinking a bunch of that is going to flow in to Q4 with high single digits expectations. And I suspect that we might see again, you know, low single digits. So I don't know. It seems like the market or investors are positioning a little bit for some of those very defensive, less cyclical sort of names right now. There was also one other thing that happened yesterday or a couple of days ago that might have fallen through the cracks is that Treasury announced they're going to be issuing less treasuries. And so that also took some of the supply issue away from the market. So I think it caught some traders off guard that may have been carving their shorts, obviously, that are sending yields lower here in the bond market. So I think there's a lot of technical things, but I would not have would not have thought, Dan, to your point, that the two-year yield would make its way back to 41 basis points when, in practicality, you did not get much movement in Fed fund futures. And I think, again, the setup was probably wrong coming into it, maybe too short. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It means that it's wrong today. So I would expect... We had a 210 spread that I believe at one point had double digits. I think it was 99 or hovering around 100. We're back to, I don't know where it is right now, 110, 112. But I think people are keeping an eye on that as well. Yeah, but like, how dumb are we, right? The largest market cap company in the world, Microsoft. And it's a great company. I don't think any of us are, are here to tell you that it's not. But a $2.5 trillion market cap, it's just a little bit above Apple right now, is up 20% from the start of October in a month. 20%. Does that make any sense? So you would only be piling into a risk asset like that if you are worried about something else. Is that fair to say? I mean, right, Danny? I mean, like, why would, on what planet does that make any absolute sense from an investment standpoint? Dan, you're talking to a guy that's been shitting on Tesla now for three years. So nothing makes sense to me. But let me just say this to your point. Again, the market overall, when you look at it without looking underneath, looks healthy, right? Because the large market cap names are performing. You just brought up Microsoft and Apple. And those are two huge horses, right? They can really hide or mask some underlying issues. But here's the thing that keeps bothering me. The retail investors are the ones that are always end up losing on this. Just look at Avis, right? What it did. Put up a great quarter, no doubt. Stock went from 180 to 545 to 291 down again. That's not healthy, obviously, for a company. You know, it's not a massive size, but it's big enough. Bed, bath, and beyond. 15 to 30 to 20. And then you get Moderna. And to your point, Dan, you made earlier, when stocks don't trade on fundamentals and then they kind of end, where do they, where, what is the buy point for these? Which is why you're seeing stocks go down 25, 50%. Here's the Moderna number. They did 5 billion in revenues in the quarter. They did $7.70 a share, right? Over last year, obviously, they didn't have the, really the vaccine out yet. 157 million and lost $233 million. It's a 140 billion market cap walking into today. It's down to 120 billion today. Is that a right place to buy it? Do you have the next cure for something? I don't know. But the point is that you have these stocks trading like this, and maybe NVIDIA will end up falling into the same camp once they report, and there's something that's not abstract that you can hold on to. But you're right. It's not healthy. 
And but the big horses have been holding up and getting stronger. We can't underestimate something like Avis. So again, the symbol there is car. This right now, I'm looking at the stock. It's talking about a fifteen one five billion dollar company. The stock, as Danny mentioned, within the course of twenty four hours, went from one seventy five to five hundred and forty five dollars and eleven cents. And as we look at it here, it's trading either side in a two seventy five, which is remarkable, and it's completely unhealthy. Stocks should not trade that. When you talk about stable markets, it's one of the Fed's mandates, apparently. Well, it's anything but. So, I mean, it's stable in terms of the S&P 500, but below the surface, there are a lot of weird things going on. Yeah, but all right. So here's the one thing I want to say. I, I don't really care about the meme stocks. And I've said this to you guys over the course of the year. When you think about them in market cap terms, I do think they say something about- Avis isn't a meme taking. stock though, Dan. That's not fair. Avis is well, not a meme well, stock. It became one yesterday, well, be- but it wasn't one. It wasn't well, one. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. But 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 that's what I mean. I mean, obviously it became a meme stock. There's the only way you could have that sort of price action. But again, I'm going to go back to NVIDIA up 55% since the start of of October. It's got a 770, excuse me, correction from before, $770 billion market cap, right? So Microsoft up 50% on the year, up 20% in just a month. Well, that's a half a trillion dollars. Tesla has gained a half a trillion dollars in market cap in a month. There's no way you can tell me that's I got, healthy I got a phrase whatsoever. for you, Dan. Dream the meme. What? Dream the meme. No, I understand. But you guys are the ones who have been saying that really there's a reckoning coming. And I've always tried to be like, all right, well, you know what? If we didn't really crash and stay down in a global black swan Whoa. pandemic. Guy, he's trying to back away from any bearishness. Just for we're on the record right now. Go ahead. No, I'm not. But what I'm, ta- what I'm telling you is I've been doing this for 25 years. And when you see this sort of price action, you better get your antennas up because it's not fucking. I agree. Low. That's kind of the point that I'm agree. making. Yep. Okay. And so like all of a sudden now, I feel like, oh my goodness, we actually could crash at some point. I mean that really seriously, because if you have so much concentrated in such a small group of names where there is no valuation support, you guys tell me this, okay, with NVIDIA, it trades at 66 times Next year, fiscal 2023, expected earnings, they're supposed to grow 15%, okay? But here's the kicker. It trades at 26 times sales. Dan, you're preaching to the choir. I'm with you. And it's a great story. It's a great story. Like, I get it, but not like that. I quit, but I get it. Exactly. I'm with you on that. So you have to wonder, you know, at what point do these valuations matter and what's going to be the event? I still think what's going on in mainland China, what's going on with Taiwan, I don't think the market's making nearly enough out of that. I mean, that seems to be a story every day. There seems to be escalation. That's not going to resolve itself overnight. These supply chain issues are not going away. Danny's talked about that for months now. But again, here we are at the market, the S&P 500 at all-time high. The one thing we do have to mention is this ARK ETF, I tell you, you talk about the push me, pull you and the Dr. Doolittle. Remember that Yama, whatever thing was, one head, one way or the yeah, other. From it's like the bro. painting. Remember that, Dan? Well, I mention that because it appears as though to me that ARK ETF right now is hanging by a thread. And the thread that it's hanging by is in the form of Tesla stock, which is either side of $1,200. Because some of the other things, Zillow, not least of which, not particularly healthy uh, under the surface in the ARK ETF. So, guy, that goes back to kind of what we were just talking about before. Look at like a Teladoc, you know, um, so they're not doing that anymore. People are going to their doctor. Some of these other things, Zoom, they're going back to the office. I actually think Square is in there. And I know we've spent a lot of time talking about buy now, pay later. They just did a $29 billion acquisition a couple months ago for that company. I think it's called Afterpay in Australia. Square and PayPal report next week. I think this is going to be really important to see what they're able to guide to 
and how the stocks react. I think there could be some tremendous volatility, especially when you think about just how Visa and MasterCard acted after their results. So I think you're starting to lose some of these horsemen, if you will. And let me tell you this, if these banks come in really hard because rates aren't going anywhere, I just think that this could be the kind of setup. You might have that squeeze into Thanksgiving. You know, we always get that that kind of tech and the, and the consumer discretionary squeeze. And maybe they squeeze them into the end of the year, that sort of thing. But next year, I mean, when we get into January, February, and if growth expectations don't materialize the way the market at all-time highs is suggesting, then I think we got some problems in Q1. I'm with you. And I think that's going to happen. But well, I mean, it's, you know, it really is amazing. Speaking of PayPal, yes, it's not cheap. It's obviously a little expensive. Stock's been awful. But I could tell you tomorrow, maybe it's going to make that move to 400. Maybe on the earnings, somebody will see something. Yes, they're in the buy now, pay later. They're in crypto. They're in all the right things. It's a very well-run company in a great space, but it's expensive. But why is that one only trading here? And NVIDIA, to your point, Dan, it's just, there's no method to the madness here, what people decide to take and run with, right? It's just, that's the part I think that you're talking about and that you're seeing. It's just inconsistent and it's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, what's something that we can say is constructive, Guy? You had a little time. You got some fresh air. You're out there in the wilderness here. You were away from some of the silliness here. How can we be constructive? How can we think about into year end how people that are listening to this can kind of make money or set up to make money here? The resiliency of the market is what you're encouraged by. And that's been the case now literally for the last 10 years. And it seems as though it becomes more and more resilient with each passing of worse and worse news. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. I think that's one thing you can take away, the fact that the market seems to always find its footing, number one. Number two, the economy, people want to get out and do things. I was in a few airports over the weekend. I was in Chicago on a connection flight on Tuesday evening. The place was packed. Even Salt Lake City was extraordinarily busy. A fantastic airport, by the way. I mean, talk about a smooth running operation. They have it there. So people are out and about. I think people want to do things. And with the holidays approaching, you know people are going to spend money regardless of whether or not Uh, the supply chain sorts itself out. I think that's a really important point, Guy, and I've been kind of saying this to some people quietly over the last few weeks or so. If you can't get that thing that you want to buy for a holiday, for a gift, or for yourself, or something like that, you certainly can buy a plane ticket. And I'll just tell you this. I mean, New York City right now, we have this NFT week going on here, and it is all systems go. I mean, when I tell you that New York City feels as close to pre-pandemic as it has been, I know, Danny, you were here last weekend, and Guy, you come in. So I think the whole idea that hospitality, um, whether it be travel... And and to your point, Danny, about Avis, it got going because people are traveling again, right? That's why the momentum started. And it was not hard to become a meme stock for the slightest of reasons. We saw that with Hertz too. If those things were still dead in the door, they wouldn't be working. And I will just tell you that pretty soon, the airlines are going to start to work again. Some of these hotel chains will start to work again. Airbnb could be heading back to all-time highs. So those are the things that I think I would pivot to, especially if you're thinking about consumer discretionary spending and And if you can't get the goods that you want, you may go for some services. And I think the other thing that's supporting the market here is oil has, it has come down about six or $7 off of the highs. I'm not saying that, you know, it's going to 70 or 60 bucks. Dan, I I know you've talked about that in the blink of an eye. We we could be back down quickly, but I think the timing of that is also helpful to the market here. It just is because it is a huge input cost. So it's still up a lot, but it's definitely, and that would be a positive for the airlines, obviously, Dan, if if oil were to come in sustainably. One of the things that happened this week as well, we obviously had election, these what they call mid-cycle election or off-cycle what the hell they call it doesn't really matter. But New York City, obviously, I think that was a, as the French say, a fait accompli. In other words, we knew who was going to win that election. But all of a sudden this week, we hear him, he's going to turn New York City into, Dan, get ready for this. I know you're excited about this. 
the crypto capital of the world. The crypto, I'll say that again, the crypto capital of the world. And apparently, he's going to take his compensation in Bitcoin. I say bully for him. It already is the crypto capital of the world. We've been talking about some of these migrations from California, from some of these tech hubs. Obviously, Silicon Valley, LA was really a huge beneficiary pre-pandemic of just the spreading out. But we know that a lot of crypto folks went to Miami last year. Mayor Suarez was very welcoming of that community. Austin has obviously been a beneficiary. But I think New York is the place to be. I think it's going to be, obviously, it was just the fintech hub, but it's going to be the crypto hub going forward. And I think that's good news. Remember all the cries for the death of New York City. Well, New York City, like I just said, it never went away. It feels like it's back to pre-pandemic levels. And I think if we are going to be really welcoming to innovation as it relates to crypto, and obviously there's a whole host of regulation that has to take part on the state level and the federal level. But if we get any clarity on that, I mean, I think it's going to be all systems go. When you think about DeFi as one of the real huge driving forces of Web3 and a lot of the energy and a lot of the resources and capital are being focused in the crypto landscape right now, New York City is going to be the center of that. And, and let me tell you this, if any of the big centralized finance incumbents start to embrace some of these applications in DeFi, it's all over. New York is going to be the place. I was just about to say that exact thing. It's because the, if the, it's going to take the global banks really welcoming it, which they are little by little to do it. And they, are, and they are slowly doing it. So of course, the same way that Silicon Valley for technology became the center because adaptation and um, new technology would have to be adapted to existing. The same thing here. It has to attach itself to the financial system. And, you know, I think we're off to the races. When I was a young lad, uh, fellas, we used to play a game. I was one of five. So we used to play a game called Red Light, Green Light, one, two, three. Danny Moses, are you familiar with that game? I am after I watched Squid Game. Yep. That's where I was going. Apparently in the Squiddy games, they play this, but if you lose, something really bad happens to you. But something really bad happened to this Squid Game Please educate me, Danny. Apparently, there's now a Squid Game token. Help me. Let's just put it in perspective. I think the highest it got in value was like $3.4 million. But that being said, who were the losers here in the bag holders were the retail investors that were moving around on Binance. So it went to 2860 per coin from $0.04 cents back to basically zero. And the developers, I guess, absconded with the proceeds. But don't worry. Binance is investigating and they're going to get back to us on exactly what happened. But yes, I mean, that's a small microcosm. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to add one one thing that kind of caught my eye today on Thursday as we're taping this. You know, Penn Gaming is down ah. 20% here. And I think it yep. was interesting that, you know, I'm looking at the headlines and of course I see, you know, six or seven top headlines about a missed earnings and guidance. And the stock is down 50% now from its highs or maybe a bit more. And then there's a story about Dave Portnoy, who's the founder of Barstool Stores that Business Insider put out about just some alleged behavior. And these are things that have been very much part, I think, of his MO. Um, and it was one of the reasons why they have this following, just kind of this bro culture sort of thing. And I'm not going to say who, but I DM with the CEO of a company that had some partnership with him. And I sent that over because I like the company. I like what they do. And I said, listen, you better hit this early and often. You better separate yourself from this sort of situation. And I do think, you know, what, what's the expression, Guy, when, when the tide comes out, we start, or Danny, you like to use that expression. I think it also refers to behavior too. The fact that so many brands were willing to put up with this guy and this this kind of culture and this behavior that seemed to be like really paramount to the Barstool Sports brand is just shocking to me. This stock is going to go much lower. I'm just telling you. And I know I've said on this podcast because of my feelings towards this guy 
and what he represents. I've never wanted the stock to go to zero more than this one. Well, I think it's happening. I'm not telling you short it. I'm not telling you press it or this now or whatever. But I do think that there's a lot of personality-driven stories in this market. And I just really Dan is there are there personality-driven. <laughs> Well, no, but I, I mean, I'm thinking about it because like the memification in the- You, you know where know, I'm going, of, obviously, of Dan. Crypto. But yeah. All right, well, let's go. No, no. You're talking about personalities that are driving stock prices. I mean, Elon Musk, I would argue, you just made the same argument you make towards Portnoy that I'll make towards Musk, that people reliance on this or the belief in this. And all of a sudden, the, not truth comes out, but the people change their viewpoint of that person, whatever, and has an impact on the company because the company was trading off of the belief that this person always has your back. They understand how to drive. But- Portnoy was never a fundamental guy. And I don't think that's why the stock is necessarily down. I mean, they missed numbers, right? The hurricane obviously hit them. I know, but what do you think would happen? Do you don't think a large part of the stock's move in 2020 had to do with their buying bar stools and, and, and him being just a constant? I think it had to do with a little bit of that in the PR, but Penn moving into online gambling, obviously, they were already doing that. They enhanced that, obviously, by trying to buy barstool to include content. Yeah, but this was just content. No, no, I said to get marketing. content to go with it. But Penn, let's not, Penn existed long before Poor no yeah, ever heard of Danny, it. Danny, yeah. and Penn was a $4 stock at the lows. It, it basically had a market cap of like $400 million, and it had like $11 billion in debt. Dan, let me let me just say it differently, and I don't disagree with you. I think that their barstool deal and the explosion of online gaming helped mask for Penn what were always the underlying issues, right? The regional casinos and areas, obviously, either hard hit by COVID or, you know, they always get it, – it's, it's very cyclical in that matter. This took away, to your point, of the cyclicality of the business or people looking at it on a fundamental story. And it became somewhat of a meme based on Portnoy and the personality of him. And let's not kid ourselves. Portnoy was a big driver, has been a big driver of Robinhood as it was taking off. Anyway, I think it's all those things put together. But I do think the stock obviously was probably overvalued. I just think there's no comparison though, Danny, but like Elon Musk and, and him. I mean, like this guy literally built a platform around misogyny. You know, I mean, like that. that's it. So just for context, in terms of Penn, the symbol obviously is P-E-N-N. This was a $142 stock in March. It's now 56% lower, down some 20% as we're taping this on Thursday. It's a remarkable move. It still has a $4.5 billion market cap, but you can put into context what's going on. So I think all the points the guys made are really interesting. But along those lines, we have to talk about this before we go to our guests and go off the tape. Danny Moses, it's, it's epic. It's like I watch that Matthew McConaughey movie. What was that thing called? Like One for the Money or Two for the Road. It was a <laughs> shitty movie, but yeah. you know, you are that guy. I mean, you you're on fire. On freaking fire. So please tell our audience where you stand. And if you could just give us a couple picks for this week. I believe this is now week nine, if not mistaken, in the week where they play for pay. So yeah, so we went over because Dan and I were filling time last week because you weren't around. Went over a bunch of picks. I, I gave out kind of five, and I picked my favorite last week, which was Denver Broncos to win and cover, which they did over the Washington football team. So the other game last week, which I did give out, that Dan took the other side of, was the Chargers at home against the Patriots. I had the Patriots. Dan ended up taking the Chargers in that also. So there was two games last week. And I have one pick for you this week, and that's it. One pick this week. Listen, 12-0. and 0. So this is what a lot of people would do. For you Met fans out there, Jose Reyes was uh, going to win the National League batting championship, I think, eight, nine, ten years ago, and he decided to sit out uh, the final <laughs> game of the season. Now, I mention that because somebody named Ted Williams actually played in a doubleheader with his 400 batting average in the balance, and he went for like five for eight in the twin bill. So that's the difference between the Mets 
and Ted Williams. You are Ted Williams, Danny Moses. So with your 12-0 record, let me hear it. I like the Bengals at home, laying two and a half against the Browns. They're coming off three road games. The reason, and you know, congrats to the Jets for beating the Bengals last week. That's great. But historically, and it rarely happens when an NFL team has three road games in a row, rarely do they cover the third game. Second thing, they have a bye week next week. I think Cincinnati is pissed. I think they come in. I think Cleveland is in disarray. You know how much I hate Odell Beckham Jr. anyway. He wasn't a factor, but he's creating more commotion and problems on his team. I take the Bengals. I lay the two and a half, and I put it up there with, if not my favorite pick of the year, equal to the Patriots-Jets from a couple weeks ago. So that's what I'm going with. I'm not taking the other side. It doesn't sound like Odell's going to be playing here, um, Danny. And I want to take this. So this is what I'm going to take, whether you want it or not. L.A. Chargers going to the Philadelphia Eagles. They're given one and a half here, and I want to take the Chargers. Wow. Chargers cross-country laying the wood in Philadelphia after the Eagles are coming off a ridiculous win where I understand the Lions suck. I get that, but that's one of those games where their mojo is back. So, Dan Nathan, a bold call. Danny Moses? Hey, Dan, I don't love that, so this doesn't count. I will take the other side because you've been forced to take the other side of a lot of my picks. I'll take the Eagles at home, getting one and a half. And so whatever dollar amount you want. All right. So I'm down 3,600 to you on the season, which is really embarrassing. So how about we do it for 1,600? All right. 1,600. Fine. I'll take the Eagles. But just for the record, the Bengals is, is my pick this week. So fine. It's not your Very official good. pick. I got I it. Love All right. it. All right. There, All was right. Some, there was some heat this week. But listen, when we come back, I don't know. What is WTF? What is that? What the? What the what, F? What the what F? What the F? Well, what the F is a freaking metaverse. We're coming back with Packy McCormick. PMAC, as I like to call him. Yes, I gave him that nickname. Meltem Demers, just like saying that. And of course, Jared Dicker. I won't tell you what I call him when we come back. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. We're going to go off the tape with Jared Dicker of the Churning Group, Meltem Demers from CoinShares, and Packy McCormick from Not Boring Capital in a newsletter of the same name. This is going to be a little bit of a warm-up for OK Computer, a podcast that Versal Media will be launching in the next few weeks with my other co-hosts, Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital and Katie Stanton of Moxie Ventures. You've heard from both of them on the tape over the last few weeks here. All right, we have one mission today to answer one question. What the fuck is the metaverse? The metaverse already exists. It's called the fucking internet. (laughs) We use it all day, every day. I live in the metaverse. I don't call it that. I call it cyberspace because fuck Mark Zuckerberg and fuck Facebook. We're calling it cyberspace. But look, it already exists. It's all of the things that you do with all of the different personas that you've constructed around yourself. So all of us here are active on Twitter, right? We have Twitter personas. We have default reality physical personas. We have personas in games. We have personas in different sub-communities that we participate in online. We already live in a world with metaverses. Metaverses are really just fragments of different versions of reality that you occupy space in. That's it. Super simple. 
Jared, you're an investor at the Turning Group. You're focused on Web3. I think you would probably echo what Meltem had to say here, but you're interested in lots of different protocols, a lot of the different components of what anyone might view as the metaverse. And I think she put it pretty aptly here that it's not one thing. It's not going to be one thing. It's going to be many things. How are you thinking about it, Jared? I agree with Meltem, especially for some more than others. We've already been aggressively living our lives online and Now that people see larger business opportunities, they like to put a name on it to kind of craft it as their own. And everyone has their metaverse play. I'm formerly in media and advertising. And once Adweek and AdAge start talking about Coca-Cola going metaverse, you know, you're just in the deepest, weirdest pockets of a trend. But for me, the biggest exciting part, I'd say, and to put a positive slant on this, there's so much discussion is that We have been spending most of our time online and we are now recognizing that we are likely more identifiable and speak to more people and quote unquote, see more people online than we do in real life. I like to pick out my outfits. I wear hats. I have tattoos. I make decisions based on how I like to be perceived in the real world. And the other day I'm like, holy shit, more people see me online or talk to me online that actually see me in real life. So the cool areas I think of metaverse is around identity, around status, really thinking about how people want to be represented, not so much as like a game or a trend, but more so a reality of the fact that that's how people perceive you and where they see you. People focus on metaverse as virtual gaming and metaverse in areas, again, that best benefit their ideology and their bottom line or business. But in reality, it's just an extension of your identity and online presence. And I think people are starting to invest more in that because they're just realizing that that's kind of who they are more so than their physical self. I'm going to have to hard disagree with this. So I think the metaverse is Horizon Workroom, Horizon Home, and all of the properties that Mark Zuckerberg and Meta end up developing. So I never used Oculus. And I actually tweeted this and Packy liked it. (laughs) I used Oculus and I was like, holy shit. I definitely am hypercritical of Facebook. But when I put that thing on, I was like, wow. I was climbing a mountain. I fell. Then I was killing zombies, literally with my bare hands. It is interesting. I think it's just a hard debate and conversation because again, it is what you perceive. But I have to say that I was shitting on it. And then I put it on and I had like a holy shit. Yeah, but were you shitting on it because it's the gateway to Zuckerberg's vision of his metaverse is that you have to go through his hardware and therefore the things that how you're going to interact in there, you're going to use the sort of apps that they've created and that sort of thing. I think that's one of the criticisms, but Packy, I've read your deep dive on Axie and the play to earn. And this is where a lot of this creator stuff comes in. How are you thinking about it? I know you came in and you were joking about just the different enterprise applications that Zuckerberg would love to do and some of the native currency that they'd love to create. But how are you thinking about it? Talking about the Facebook piece first, because it's top of mind. They wrote a memo, Zuck wrote a memo in 2015 about AR and VR and how hardware was actually the least important part of the stack and something that they just had to do because it gave them an opportunity to sell their platform services and to sell their apps. They've gotten pushback recently when they try to make everybody log in to the Oculus Quest with their Facebook account, and they can't do that anymore. So I think the most interesting thing to me about the Facebook involvement is that Facebook won't even be allowed to 
be Facebook, I think, because everything's kind of moving into such a decentralized and open version of this. And as Jared Melton said, we are already kind of living in the metaverse that there's just not going to be one portal. Hopefully they spend a shit ton of money developing amazing AR glasses and headsets and all of that, that all of us can use. I love using the Quest. I think it's very cool. But hopefully that's almost like a public good that Facebook wants to catch this next trend and be the next computing platform and beat Apple. And we're the beneficiaries of them not wanting to lose the next platform. And I think what Facebook is able to do in this world is very different than what Facebook was able to do in the last version of the internet. But it would echo those sentiments completely. I think right now, probably the difference is just as the hardware and experiences get better, it'll feel cooler to be there. You pointed out we should be meeting in person next time and recording this in person. Zoom or Riverside, which is a great piece of podcast recording software, it's like a 2D thing on our screen where we're sitting in our own room with our headsets on. Like The fact that we spend so much of our time behind a 2D screen when we could be doing this in like a weird kind of like outer space world where it feels like we're with each other, that's cool. And I don't think like there's a metaverse at some point when that happens, but I do think hopefully the experiences that we have kind of living and connecting online just continue to get better and better and better. I take issue with all of that. I vehemently disagree. Cyberspace has existed for decades. When I got onto the internet, I was in cyberspace. I had a handle. Actually, I had multiple handles. I had an AOL handle. I had a Usenet handle. I had an IRC handle. I had different personas. I had different people. I was. I played a lot of video games. And in those games, I had handles and I had characters that I built. And even now, right, this idea of Web3 and working in cyberspace is actually something that's been around for ages. It's called mechanical turking. There are people all over the world who live in economies that are not dollar denominated who work online. They perform menial tasks online in online marketplaces. Amazon is one of the largest mechanical turking marketplaces. And people earn Amazon credits. There's actually huge business around turning Amazon credits that people are earning in Pakistan or in Malaysia or in other countries where, guess what? There is no freaking Amazon. So what are you going to do with your Amazon credits? Well, there are these marketplaces that got built in 2013 and 2014 where you could sell your Amazon credits for Bitcoin to Americans who wanted to buy things on Amazon. So again, I think it's sort of silly to me that people attach this new term to metaverse and all of a sudden we believe it's a new thing. It's not new. It's been here for decades and decades. We've been doing it for decades and decades. And I think the fundamental battle we're fighting is one player, which is the world's largest distribution platform, which is Facebook. Are they going to operate in this space? My view is no. Facebook is as incompetent at execution on new platforms as our government is at doing anything even remotely constructive and innovative. And the reason why is Facebook is an ossified large behemoth that has one focus, maximizing shareholder value. They will always do whatever they need to do to maximize shareholder value which is why I have placed all of my bets, all of my capital, all of my time, all of my energy, all of my avatars and my personas and my alts and my pseudonyms are in Web3 because the people who are building this future are people like me, people who are at this NFT NYC conference, people in the Bitcoin space. These are the original cyberspace pioneers 
who are building a different vision for the future and a vision where the platforms that we build on, the infrastructure that we're using is not owned by a monolithic zombie corporation that sees you as a profit center. Every quarter that you use Facebook, you generate $50 of revenue for Facebook. What if every quarter that you used these protocols and these tools and this infrastructure, you were actually getting paid as a value creator? So Packy, you create a ton of content. You wanted to monetize it. What did you do? You made a Substack so that you could monetize your insights. Me, Meltzer, I have a Twitter following. I spend a lot of time and energy putting my thoughts out there. How am I getting compensated? Well, I'm using that relationship I've built with my audience to invest in the infrastructure of cyberspace and to make all of this possible. So Packy wrote a post on Not Boring, a minimally extractive meta, and you guys should all check it out. And I think you guys are probably in more agreement, Packy, with Meltem. But Jared, you just launched a Web3 investment platform at the Churning Group, and you just said that you have this media background. How do you think of the proclamation from someone like Mark Zuckerberg saying that they're going to spend billions of dollars? The stock just got hit tens of billions of dollars in one fell swoop because of this announcement here. How do you think of this? Have they laid down the gauntlet here? Are we going to see all the major platform companies? Is Apple next to do this sort of thing? And how do you think of it from an investment standpoint? The way I think of it is very in tune with what Meltem's saying, not to just agree to agree, but I got into this space because I also believe in that world. In my mind, Facebook's like a hardware company. They're like the GE of this era, and they're no longer the company that's going to be innovating and bringing new things. They've tried that multiple times, and they're in this function of operation, whether it's serving shareholders or just kind of maintaining. What I found most fascinating about the Facebook announcement is people under 40 laughed at him. People over 40 who actually use Facebook are like, what is this change? It's just kind of a lot of signals of just a company that is maintaining and operating. All of the things that I'm looking at, at least in the Web3 space, are all bottoms-up type approaches. The analogy that Meltem said, I think, is right on. In so many of these Web2 platforms, you created on these platforms, whether it's a Substack or a YouTube, and you earned your own cut of revenue from that platform, but you really didn't give a shit if other writers or creators on the platform were successful. You definitely didn't care if that platform was necessarily successful because you weren't incentivized to do so. You just figured whatever happens, happens, and I'll move on. And in the new case, what's happening bottoms up Web3 is if you're a creator on the platform, You're also effectively an equity owner in the platform, either by entering tokens or participating. You also want your quote unquote competitors or colleagues or other writers or creators on the platform to also be successful because everything rises up. So the whole mindset is there. You can't renovate business models. You can't renovate platforms. Facebook is not going to build an environment where everyone is going to feel like they're supporting and building each other up. And if Facebook wins, they win. That's just not the case with any of these Web2 platforms. And that is the Web3 ethos. And it's a very winning model. I'm bullish on the idea. People laugh at the GMI stuff, but it's true. That's the mindset. Everyone succeeds. We all build together. We benefit socially. We benefit financially. And those companies aren't being built within Facebook. They're being built outside. It's also different than Web2. None of these companies are building a Web3 product for YouTube or a Web3 product for Spotify. They're building something completely outside of it, could compete with it, could be something completely different. The way that we used to build from 2010 to 2020 and innovate outside of Web3 was like trying to optimize and monetize the platforms that dominated. This whole mindset is like, forget those platforms. We could bring more value, create something new, make more money, bring on new talent, 
and do it completely outside. So I actually think it's like an old company that'll continue to maintain that won't really be innovating or revolutionizing anything except maybe hardware, but in which I don't see many Web3 platforms building with the hopes that Facebook is going to support what they're doing. It's just a whole different mindset. So, Packy, when we think about some of these Web3 applications decentralized, from an investment standpoint, how are you thinking about this? Will they disintermediate some of these large Web2 platforms that, let's be frank, Twitter, Snap, they may never reach a billion monthly active users. So have these platforms, some of them, seen their best days? Yeah, I think there will still be, for the next X number of years, these companies will continue to grow. Twitter will continue to probably sit in the $50 a share, $60 a share range and just not extract any value. Maybe Twitter was the first Web3 company, actually, where it's almost more of a public than anything that extracts value for itself. I'm running Not Boring Capital and more and more just already the difference between fund one and fund two, the number of Web3 investments that I'm making is continuing to grow. I bought in on everything that Meltem and Jared are saying here. I think it's a more aligned, potentially better business model. Will Facebook continue to grow because a lot of people use Facebook over the next X number of years? And will they extract everything they can out of the core platform and out of Instagram? And will they monetize WhatsApp? Like, Probably. And I think that will last for a few years. And I think the more probably that they extract and try to optimize the product for revenue now, the sooner people leave those platforms, frankly. I can't use Facebook anymore. I think that's probably true with all of us here because it's been A-B tested to hell. And so the more threat there is on the upside and the next platform and all of that, the more they're going to try to, I think, squeeze out short term. But will Facebook be a good buy from a stock market perspective for the next couple of years? Almost definitely. Am I, am I investing more in Facebook? Absolutely not. My money is going into the same kind of Web3 companies that Jared and Melton are investing in now and protocols and projects and, and all of that. So I want to step back and talk about monetization. I think one of the really important things that people miss is people understand linear change very well. Facebook is a company that operates in cycles of linear change. So they can tweak things a bit. They can launch new products and feature, but the changes are linear. The changes we're talking about in the crypto space and what we're doing with this new model, they're exponential changes. And it's really difficult for the human mind to conceptualize exponential change because it's dramatic. It happens very quickly. And the impact is typically extremely disruptive. And that could happen in a variety of different ways. So when we talk about monetization, the thing that's being monetized in the existing online model is your attention, your data. You are the product. The service is free and you are the product. And again, a lot of people, if they're receiving utility from the service, maybe they don't mind that. But basically what we've architected over the last decade in building this crazy world of cryptocurrencies and these crazy ideas is a new model where instead of you being the product, you actually get to participate in the value creation and the value of the network that gets built. So for example, if I'm a user of say Showtime, which is a social platform that allows you to showcase and curate and discover NFT collections, I actually also get to participate in the wealth creation, the value creation of that network. 
let's say I'm a really big fan of Packy, and I think Packy is going to be like a hugely important thought leader in the future and a tech philosopher, I could potentially buy Packy's social tokens. And as Packy's reputation grows, those will appreciate in value. And I can have a different type of experience with Packy where instead of just consuming his content and having a one-way relationship, there's more of a collaborative relationship between the creator, the audience, and the ability for people to co-create. And that's like the beauty of collaboration. And that's really where I think so many corporations just are unable to actually communicate with their end audience and really understand what it is people want. So as we think about sort of this future and what it's going to look like, what I think starts to get really interesting, specifically about the currency component, is historically our ability to conceptualize value has been very limited. The issue is, for example, let's say we're talking about a transaction. If I have this iced coffee and I want to give Packy this iced coffee, I will give Packy this coffee. He will give me $10. This is New York after all. And then he'll have a coffee and I have $10. The issue in digital space and cyberspace is if I have a digital coffee and I copy it and I paste it to Packy, now we both have coffees. What cryptocurrencies resolve is that double spend problem. Historically, the way that's been resolved is me deleting the coffee from my database, Packy adding it to his database, and us reconciling and verifying that that's the truth. But there's really no way for us to do that on a global scale amongst billions of people. And so it starts to become really interesting now with cultural capital, right? And I believe culture is currency. Culture has always been currency, When you buy currencies, when you buy assets, you're buying into belief about culture. And so what's really interesting now is we are on the cusp of rebuilding this new sort of cyberspace experience where we can turn culture into currency. And the people who are doing this, it's DJs, it's artists, it's influencers, it's thought leaders, it's writers, it's museums, it's institutions of cultures. And then we add one layer on top of that. The other thing that's happening is historically institutions have had top-down hierarchy approach where institutions make taste. Institutions tell us what culture is. It starts at the top. It filters down through media, right? Media is an extension of this institutional hierarchy that informs our preferences and our perception of what we should value. And all of a sudden, that's gone out the window because in this new world of cyberspace, no one has credibility. And at the same time, everyone has credibility. You have anonymous avatars, no one knows who they are, who have more credibility than freaking Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. And so this really interesting concept starts to emerge where institutions no longer exist in their current form. And I think we're entering an age where individuals themselves are becoming institutions, especially individuals and influencers who operate in the creative space because they're able to turn their creativity into currency. And that currency has real tangible value, and they're spending that currency to create more culture, not to buy yachts, not to buy planes. They're spending it to buy art from other artists. They're spending it to host events. They're spending it to build platforms to bring more creativity into cyberspace.
That's one thing that I think is really different as we talk about this NFT week here in New York. You talk about culture. I remember going to the consensus events or whatever the big week was back in 2017. And it was really a bro culture with the identity that people were sharing where the Lambos pulling up and very seriously. And so, Jared, I'm just curious how you think about that, because it seems like this is your mindset right now. This is what's different this time, right? Yeah. I remember being on that boat in consensus 2018 and it definitely was a way different vibe. It was fun, but it definitely was a way different vibe. But to the point that I think Melton made earlier, a lot of those people continue to build and are kind of foundational to where we're at today. And this week in New York City has been absolutely amazing because it really feels that we've gone into this cultural movement and it's becoming so addicting and exciting. And whether you're building or whether you're going to see live music or just getting together, the socialization is definitely here. It's kind of like that Ken Kesey quote, we'll invite you onto the bus and you could get on the bus, but if you don't get on the bus, then it won't make a damn. And we're kind of like there with crypto. And I think At this point, there's a big difference from three years ago and four years ago. Like at this point, crypto is every pocket of the internet. It's every pocket of online. It's every behavior and interest group. It's not just financial. And it's the social phenomena that I think has become increasingly exciting, has opened up a lot of opportunities, has introduced new talent and people and ideas to the world. And more and more people are just wanting to get on board and wanting to learn more. And a lot of efforts are really going there. So I'd say it's really gone beyond a conference or this financial pocket or this new technology. It really has become this social movement. And that's what is making everyone so excited. And I think allows people to be so bullish and also drives so much conviction as not to sacrifice anything. You believe it, you want it to work and the smartest people and most excited people are working together to make that a reality. And you feel that. One of the wildest parts to me, and it's hard to believe it. I think we're in a very small but growing group of people who are fully bought in and believers, but just how many unbelievably smart people are entering the space to the point where it feels weird when I meet somebody who's leaving their job or graduating from college and not trying to build something in Web3. It's just this unbelievable talent vortex that's happening right now. Well, one thing's for certain, we're going to continue to see these periods of over-exuberance and these periods of just over-pessimism, if you will. And we're going to see that reflected in some of these crypto assets the way money moves in and out of some of these products, protocols, applications, whatever you want to call it. So listen, this is going to be a conversation that we're going to be having, I think for years here, we're going to start doing it on OK Computer Podcast coming up in the next few weeks. So I want to thank Jared, Packy, and Meltem for being here to discuss this with us today. We're going to keep that conversation going. So thanks to everyone for joining us here, and we'll see you next week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.